All right. So we are still in our study in First Thessalonians, and and we're reaching towards the end of our time in this study. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter five, and we'll be looking at verses twelve to fifteen. And starting from verse 12, we have Paul here starting to give instruction, final instructions to the church. And we're, we're familiar with this. If we're familiar with Paul's writing, he tends to have a list of different kinds of instructions or greetings toward the end. And that's where we're at. And in this particular session that we're going to be looking at tonight, it's going to be instruction for us on how do we maintain unity within the church? How, how do we continue to invest into different kinds of relationships within the church, right? We, right? This fellowship group that we're in right now, tonight, the young adults, we're just one part of a bigger church of FCBC Walnut. And, and, there's, and there's so many different kinds of relationships within our church. Our church is intergenerational. And we, have, we have families coming in. We have people from different cultures. We have three congregations. Uh, and then there are leaders, there are people who serve, there are those who are newcomers and new believers. And, and, and we have a vast variety of people. How does a church like this stay united, stay connected to one another? How does a church like this continue to invest in our relationships? And that's what we're going to be looking at here today. It's not going to be able to cover every relationship that you might face in that church, but it will give us a pretty broad spectrum of people of important relationships that we need to think about. Important relationships that are fundamental to a church. Things to think about as we continue to unite together during these times, and especially during these times, right? Our, our current cultural climate in America, is, it's, it's not a healthy one, right? If, if you watched the presidential debate this past Tuesday, it was, I mean, it, it, was, it was a mess. And, and to see all the different reactions that, come, that came out of that debate, I mean, it's, it, it, it shows us just how divided this country truly is. And, and as a church, one of our greatest challenges these days is to remain united, to remain unified around the gospel. Or how, how do we do that as a church when the world around us seems to be just talking over one another? How do we do that? And so this is what I want to tackle today. And, and, and what threatens unity, what tends to threaten unity is indeed sin. Sin breaks relationships. It breaks our relationship with God and it breaks our relationship with one another. Sin divides people and sin can divide the church. And therefore, in order to remain united, we have to battle sin. And the opposite of that is true. In order to remain united, we also have to obey the word of God. And what we're going to be looking at here tonight are instructions. There are imperatives. There are commands to us on how do we then remain united. And thus, if we are to obey these commands, that's one way we can help make sure we remain faithful and we remain unified for the gospel. And so your Bibles again open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Here, we're going to look at three ways to maintain unity. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for us. 
First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. I'm reading from the ESV. This is God's word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. The first way we're going to, the first thing we're going to see here is we're going to honor those who are our shepherds. Honor those who are our shepherds. We see this in verse 12 to 13. The first relationship that we need to think about is about you as members of the church with your pastor. And note here in verse 12, Paul here is talking to the church. He's asking you brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking to the church as a whole. And, and, and this, this demonstrates that as church members, you guys have a responsibility as well. We all have a responsibility of how then do we treat our pastors? How do we treat those who are over us? And here we see that Paul asks us to honor those who are our shepherds. Paul here writes, he writes about these shepherds and he, he lists three descriptions about them. Three descriptions about what they're, about their responsibilities, about what they do as shepherds. And so we, here we see the responsibilities of a pastor. And first we see that Paul says they will labor. They will labor among you. And the, the term here for labor, it's a, it's a general term. It, it talks about work. It talks about toil. And Paul tends to use this term a lot when he talks about the work of a pastor. A pastor is a laborer, someone who labors hard, tire, tirelessly for the gospel. He, he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. And we're, in that chapter, Paul here is speaking about encouraging Timothy to, to be godly, to, to train his life in the discipline of godliness, to, to live out, live out what God wants of him, to be holy. And, and, and then in verse 10 here, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says, to this end, to this end of godliness, we toil and strive. In other words, we labor and strive. And so pastors, they labor to be godly and to exercise spiritual discipline. It's, it's hard work. It's, it's pastors, they're, they're not called because they're specially gifted to be holy. They labor hard at being godly as well. And another area that pastors are called to labor in is in preaching and teaching. And we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. And in here, he's, Paul here writes again to Timothy, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so we see here that preaching and teaching, it's a, it's a labor. If they're just studying God's word, preparing sermons, it's hard work. It's 
hard work to be able to craft together messages to make sure you can, are, they are able to feed the sheep. I mean, the, the amount of hours that ideally pastors would like to put into sermon prep, if you ask any of them, they, they'll, they, they'll, they'll always probably say they don't have enough time. They wish they had more time. Every sermon feels incomplete. Um, for myself, I probably spent roughly around like 15, 20, 15, 20 hours per sermon, and I still don't feel like that's enough. Pastors labor over God's word in order to understand it, in order to know it. And, and they, they do that because that's how God wants his ministers to feed the sheep, to feed you. You are fed through the regular teaching of God's word. That's the responsibility of a pastor. A second responsibility that we see is that they are to lead. In the ESV, it says they are over you in the Lord. And the verb here that's being, that's being translated, is, it literally means standing before. Standing before someone. This is someone who's in the front line, someone who's leading the charge. The same word is used, again, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, that what I just read. And, and it tells, and it says, elders who rule well. The word rule is the same word being used here in 1 Thessalonians. Pastors here are charged to lead, to lead the flock. And we know here, back in 1 Thessalonians, is that they are over you in the Lord. I mean, pastors are charged in the Lord. They're not self-appointed. They are appointed by God himself. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says that God gave the church pastors and teachers as a gift for the church to help them grow, to help them be sanctified, to help them be united together as a flock, as a body. Pastors who rule well are a gift to the church. And so when we take a look at this then, pastors then who rule well, they're not arrogant leaders. They're instead should be seen as humble servants. Their, their authority doesn't come from themselves. They, they, don't, they don't have any authority in of themselves. It's all from God, which is why when they labor, they labor over teaching you God's word because all authority ultimately comes from God. He is the source of all authority. Third responsibility that we see here in verse 12 is that pastors are to admonish you. The word admonish means to give instruction, to, to, to teach. And, and and the word here is, in the Greek, is nuthetel. And nuthetel, nuthetel here, it has a, it's about giving instructions for the purpose of correction and change. The purpose of correction and bringing about change in someone's life. In other words, this is counseling. I mean, and if, if you are pretty wide read in biblical counseling books and you read some of the older ones, um, probably written back in like the 1970s, you'll see that biblical counselors, another term used for them was, uh, was nuthetic counselors. And that comes from this word to admonish, nuthetel. 
These are counselors there to instruct and teach people who are struggling, teach them the word of God in order to bring about correction and change. And so again, here we see that the word of God is central. The word of God is central to all that the pastor does. Pastors must preach and teach the word of God with the intention to bring about change to his people. In other words, this is how we are to grow in our faith. This is how we are to walk together and um, grow in, in love, grow in faith, grow in hope. I mean, I mean we think about the, the, all that we've covered in First Thessalonians in this letter. Paul's encouragement to, to the Thessalonian church is to grow. It's all about sanctification, to never stop striving forward, but to always pursue Christ in every way. So Paul here, Paul here lists out the responsibilities of the pastors, and he tells the members of the church to do two things here. And he says, we ask you, brothers, verse 12, to respect your pastors. And in verse 13, it tells them to esteem them very highly. And so let's take a look at these two commands. The first thing that we see here is that the responsibility, the responsibility of the congregation is to know. It's, I mean, it's to, sorry, it's, it's to respect those who labor over you. I, and in the NASB, I believe it says to appreciate. The, the verb is actually translated literally as to know. To know, and so the understanding here is that the congregation, the congregation, the members of the church, should acknowledge and recognize their pastors. They should know who is leading them. Right? What is a church member who doesn't know who the pastor is? And so there's a mutual understanding between the individuals of the church and the leaders that that God has placed these leaders here in a position of authority over them. And, and again, this is not that these people earned it. It's a, it's a stewardship, a stewardship of a role that's given to specific individuals. Moreover, to, to, to know your pastor, to know your pastor is not just simply knowing their names, but to know their lives, to know your pastors personally. You don't respect and appreciate your pastors if you don't know who they are or how they live. Right? A shepherd and a flock, there's an intimate relationship there. And so just as how the pastor is called to know his congregation, the congregation should also know their pastor. And what they, tell, what they say about pastors, especially as I'm going through seminaries, that Pastors, they live in a fishbowl. It's transparent. Everyone knows everything about your life. And, and as I'm reading something like this, and I'm just going to put myself in the, in the pastor's shoe right now and just, and just say, you know what? I, I would love to get to know you, and I would love you to get to know me as well. And, and I want to be able to live my life openly for you, for you to see how I live, what I do, and I'll gladly will want to know you as well. And so I'm, I'm looking at this and, 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 and I'm just thinking, you know what? Pastors should have an open door. Their homes should be open and their lives should be 
readily, readily prepared to invite others to come in. And so if you want to get to know me, you want to get to know my wife, know who I am as a pastor or at least as a future pastor, hopefully, I'm, I'll gladly invite you guys. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll love to be able to talk to you guys and engage with you all. And so, and so here, Paul here is telling, telling his, telling the Thessalonian church to, to respect, to know, to appreciate those who are laboring over them. And then verse 13 tells them to also esteem them very highly. And the word esteem here is literally means to think or to regard someone, to think about them very highly, which is to say that they are to think about them in, in such a, a way that's beyond all measures. To, to, to have, to have um, a deep affection for them. And, and what else we see here is that we are to think about them very highly in love as well, to regard your pastors highly in love. In other words, we see this personal affection going on and, and you know your pastors, they know you. It's a relationship that's, that's not characterized by you know, fearful submission or tolerance. It's, it's one that's characterized by joyful love. And then we see here that Paul tells them, Paul's telling you to esteem your pastors very highly in love because of their work, because of their labor, because of their responsibility over you, their stewardship. In other words, don't praise them. Don't think highly of them because of who they are. Don't, don't think highly of them because of their, their status or their rank. Think highly of them because of their work the way they serve you. And as I'm looking at these words, it's a reminder to myself as well, the type of pastor that I must be for you. One that labors, one that leads, one that admonishes you. And what we see here is that the unity of a church begins first with the relationship between the shepherd and the flock. When, when a congregation when a congregation begins to lose trust in their pastor, that's when a church falls apart. And really, that's the issue of authority in our world today. Right? The issue comes down to trust. That the world around us questions authority because they don't trust authority. Right? People right now, they don't trust law enforcement. They don't trust politicians. They don't trust our presidents. And there are many good reasons for them not to, not saying that these are all invalid insecurities, but in, in the fallen world, in the fallen world, we, we do recognize that sinners who have power abuse that power, right? And so, and so I don't even want to be too arrogant to think that the churches are safe from that. We, we have indeed seen pastors and churches who abuse their power as well. It's a sad thing to see. But I want us to be careful as we think about what's going on in the world around us to not pit everyone into the same level of mistrust. And especially don't do that in the church. Always examine their work. 
examine their lives, know them, and only hold them highly because of their work. See what they do. See how they live. This, this is what, this is what the pastors are called to do. And if they're not doing that, then, then yeah, I mean, there's a reason not to trust them. Really what this means is that you guys, members of the church, are holding their pastors accountable. Are you able to hold your leaders accountable for what God has called them to do? This is why pa- books like First, Test- First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, they're relevant for you too because you should know what God has called your leaders to do. Are your pastors laboring, leading, and admonishing you? Paul wraps up this portion, verse 13. He says, be at peace amongst yourself. And I believe here Paul is talking about being at peace between church members and their leaders, their pastors. This is where unity begins within a church. Do you trust your pastors? If not, why not? And even if you do trust your pastors, why do you trust them? What is the reason? There should be clear evidence. And again, if you want to get to know your pastors better, you want to know myself or for Pastor Hanley, Pastor Terrence, even Pastor Albert. I remember texting him, calling him one day and just asking if he wants to meet up before I became an intern. And he was glad to meet up with me. And so come to know us. And we we aren't managers of you. We are part of the same church family. The second relationship we're going to look at here, the second relationship we're going to look at here is your relationship with those who are struggling. And Paul here tells us to walk with them, to walk with those who are struggling. And so we think about church unity. Church unity starts first with your relationship with your pastors, but it moves on then to now look at to look at to those who are who are struggling with their faith, struggling with their lives. Paul here begins in verse 14. He says, we urge you. And this, is, this goes parallel with, with what we saw in verse 12. And he says, we ask you, except here, we urge you, brothers. There's a stronger statement. And what follows is also stronger because Paul here uses imperatives to state just how seriously we must take these commands. So here in verse 14, Paul here speaks about three classes of individuals that we should pay attention to, the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And Paul gives specific instructions for each of these individuals. And first, we see that Paul asks us to admonish the idle. And the idle here is they're, they're not lazy folks. There's the same words being used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, where the idlers were called busy bodies. In other words, here Paul is speaking about people who are lacking discipline, people who are disorderly, that the term here is a military term, talking about soldiers who fall out of line, who fall out of rank. And so in this context, in a church context, it's about those who lack spiritual discipline, about those who aren't content with living a faithful life 
and, and so they lose sight of the bigger goal. And, and Paul here tells you to admonish them. And this is again, the same word that we saw back in verse 12, tale. Right? It's, it's admonishing to instruct them, instruct them and bring correction and change to your lives. And this can only be done through the word of God. Right? That the church members, you have a responsibility to help those who are spiritually immature, to, to help them grow in their walks with God, to, to, to teach them how to put on Christ, and to walk in the way of the light. In other words, this is, this is discipleship. We're talking about discipleship here. Paul then writes, he says, to encourage the faint-hearted. In other words, in other words it's been to encourage those who are discouraged. These are probably people who are struggling with sin. It's a sin that they can't seem to break, break from and they're losing hope. Or perhaps this is someone who lost a close family member recently and, and they're in a state of mourning and so they're faint-hearted. Or maybe this is someone who's been facing persecution and, and oppression from from people in this world and they're losing hope. Paul here says specifically to encourage them. In other words, to be gentle with them, to be sympathetic. We're not to admonish them in a way to bring about correction, but instead we're to walk alongside with them and support them, to instill hope into their lives, to remind them of the way of God. So encourage the faint-hearted and then we see here to help the weak. And, and those who are weak, it could refer to those who are sick, to those who are suffering from a physical illness. It can also refer to those who may be underprivileged, those who maybe come from a poor financial state, maybe those who come from a broken home, We're talking about orphans or widows. Or this can be spiritual, and we're talking about those who are spiritually weak. Whatever it may be, we know that these people are suffering. And Paul here says we must help them. And the word help here, it, it, it contains a connotation of us standing above them and wrapping our arms around them as if to protect them from harm. In other words, we are to bring comfort and safety to those who feel weak and powerless. And this doesn't mean you have to fight their battles all the time, but it does mean you can give them strength. You can give them spiritual strength. You can give them comfort. All it takes is one phone call. All it takes is to hold their hand. It takes delivering one meal to them, to spend one day helping them with their chores. Are you helping the weak? And then Paul here writes to be patient with them all, all of them, all three groups, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak. Paul here tells us to be patient, which means to be long in suffering, to be willing to bear their burdens. See, Paul here knows that when you're dealing with those who are struggling, it's not an easy task. It's not something we can just mark off from our to-do list. It's most likely going to take time. It's going to take great patience. Right? Many times people 
hear people who are struggling, especially those who are struggling with sin, they might not even see their own sin. And it's going to take time to help them see that, to correct them with their ways. So do you have patience with these people? Do you have patience? Meaning, are you willing to even sacrifice your time, your efforts to be able to help them? And this is all part of being unified in a church. I know here how Paul here, he's asking you guys, urging you guys to bring about unity to the church by helping those who are struggling. And we see here that the unity of the church, it's not just, it's not about having fun with one another, hanging out or watching Laker games. and, And those things are great. I mean, that there's a time and place for all of them. But when we think about church unity, do we think about helping those who are indeed struggling with their lives right now? Do we neglect those who are struggling, those who are suffering? That may threaten the unity of the church. And, and, and the point of all of this is, is this, is that when we ourselves become one with the church, when we become a member of the church, when, when we are born again in Christ and we're united with him, what that means is that we are no longer our own. We are now all part of one body and this one body grows together. Sanctification is not just an individual cause. It's Sanctification is something done within the church. And yes, your individual holiness matters because that contributes to the whole. But in the end, God is going to look upon his people. And and in Ephesians, it, it talks about how Christ has made his church the one bride holy and blameless. All of us. And so to think then about how we can continue to grow together, to how do we pursue Christ together. Think about yourself when you go through difficult times. When you go through difficult times, what, what, are, what thoughts are going through your head? Perhaps maybe you're going through a sin issue, or maybe you're in a bad relationship, or you just broke up with someone, or maybe you're going through some physical illness. And think about during those times how fragile your faith is at that moment. How easy it is for you to complain, to be angry at God, to be frustrated at the people around you, to to seek peace and comfort in any other place other than God. People who are struggling, they need the church to come alongside of them to help them, to bring them along, and to show them ultimately Christ. Because in the gospel, we have this transformative power. We have a transformative power in the gospel to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring strength to the weak, to comfort those who are faint-hearted, and to bring forgiveness to those who are in sin. The gospel is amazing. Let me turn this around a little bit and talk about our group here. And your 
community groups, in your discussion groups, in your small groups? How are you helping those who are struggling? Now, I know in our discussion groups, we don't have the same groups week by week. And, and that's intentional because during this um, online season, we have to do all this online. It's, we, we miss the whole luring, the whole like hangout time after, after fellowship ends, right? When we used to gather around our snacks table and talk to one another and we get to meet all these different people and we just don't have that opportunity anymore. So we are mixing up groups every time to, in order for us to, you know, see new faces and continue to encourage one another in that way. But even if you're unable to catch up with someone in your discussion groups after IT, do you remember those who were in your group before? Do you remember prayer requests that they've shared? Do you remember things that they may be going through and are you willing to reach out to them during the week because again, these commandments, they're not, we don't just do them during Thursday nights or Sunday mornings. We, this is everyday work. The church is a body, it's a family that works together all the time. Is this then, is this something that you're obeying? Are you obeying these commandments day by day to, to help those who are in need. Think for a moment names that might have popped into your head during this past, I don't know, 10 minutes. Write those names down right now. And after IT is over, think about ways to reach out to them. Lastly, um, lastly here, we're gonna look upon those who may be divisive. So in verse 12 to 13, we see to honor those who are leading. In verse 14, we see to walk with those who are struggling. Now in verse 15, Paul will address how we should win those who are divisive. And we do that. We do that by doing good in the face of evil. The church, the church is full of sinners. We are all sinners. And because of that, there are, there are going to be some people who might sin against you even within the church and they might break your heart. And, and the question is this, how will you respond to those people? And Paul here says that no one should repay evil for evil. No one should repay evil for evil. He begins to stay with the commandment C. See, in other words, keep an eye out, to be watchful, to be on high alert, to make sure no one repays evil for evil. And this commandment here is not just what do you do if evil falls upon you. This commandment here is how the church should gather together to address sins that may fall on others, that may hurt others in the church. It's to protect the church altogether. And so what do you do when you see one kid bully another? What do you do when you see someone make a disrespectful remark? What do you do when you hear gossip floating around corners? What do you do when someone becomes agitated and angry at another church member? Paul here writes, says in verse 15, to always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
in the, in the command here to seek, it, it literally means to pursue or to strive for something. In other words, we are to put in an effort. We are not perfect beings, but we must pursue to do good always. Even to our enemies. So this is about working towards doing good. And, and, and again, Paul here, he cares about the church. He cares about the unity of the church to make sure each person is looking out for one another. And the reason being is this, is that when one evil falls upon another, that is indeed sin. And we are not to allow sin to perpetuate. If one person sins against another, we are to make sure sin stops right there. Paul here wants us to make sure we stay unified. Again, remember, sin is what divides. How do we stay united together? And Paul here is not even talking about just us and within, within the church, but he's saying here that we must do good to one another and to everyone, meaning to those who are outside of the church as well, to do good to all people. And we know that outside threats impacts the unity of the church all the time. We see that even in our world today. And scripture talks about how we are to deal with all this. And it's the same commands everywhere. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And even today, the church is facing danger. Even in America, the church is facing dangers. There's accusations against the church all the time, against God, and people don't even want to talk about God because the bringing upon God into a conversation is oppressive. It's, and so how do, we, how do we do, how do we battle that? How do we respond to that? Do we fight? Do we, what do we do? Let me ask you another question. What happens if the government does indeed shut churches down? What happens if if we can't go back to our building, we can't get back together. What, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to take the streets and protest? I'm looking at all these passages here. I'm looking through scripture and I, and I think we have to keep in mind of what unites us. What is it that unites us? What is it that gives us the power to do these commandments, to care for one another, to respect authority, to do good even to those who do evil to us. What is it that brings us together to do these things? And we have to remember that it is Christ who unites us. It is Jesus Christ who brings us together. Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. When, when we, when we, if we were to fight back against those who are oppressing the church, we look for justice, we tend to make it more about ourselves, not about Christ and the gospel. Instead, I want us to consider Christ. Consider what Christ did. Consider what he did when he says in John chapter 10 that he is the great shepherd, the good shepherd, and that he knows his own. His own knows me. In other words, Jesus Christ is our ultimate pastor, and we can trust him completely because he knows us, and we know him. 
Or consider Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 4, who describes him as the great high priest, the son of God who took on human flesh, who took on our human weaknesses, so that he can become someone who sympathizes with our weakness. Someone who knows how we've been tempted to know our struggles, to know our pain. And Jesus Christ is our sympathetic high priest and he today is interceding on your behalf, constantly protecting you, helping you in your weakness. And then consider Jesus Christ on the cross where the greater good the greatest good was done for us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, says you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In other words, we have done evil in killing Jesus. But what we meant for evil, God meant for good. And Jesus on the cross did not cry out in judgment against us. Instead, he said, forgive them. for They know not what they have done. Jesus here bought the church with his blood. He purchased each one of us here from pastors to the newest of believers. From top to bottom from those who are strong in their faith to those who are weak in their faith. All of us united together in Christ as one. Do not let this church, do not let this world in scatter this church. Do not let sin infiltrate and divide the church. Instead, let us stand steadfast in Christ, united in the gospel, pursuing to do good to one another and to all that let me go ahead and pray for us father we thank you for this time that we're able to gather together lord and be able to study your word and i pray lord that these commands that we see here they will sit upon our hearts and that lord we will not obey them because of a legalistic attitude but we will believe we will obey them because of our love for you, our love for the church, our love for one another, and our desire to honor Jesus and the gospel. I pray, Lord, that all of our actions will be centered around making Christ look good. And so, God, I pray that you'll be with us. And that, Lord, especially during these times, that we will continue to help one another, to pick one another up, to continue to search out your word, to learn from it, to grow from it. I pray, Lord, that we would all continue to run this race together, to grow together in Christ, that we may one day stand before you, holy and blameless, united perfectly with our Savior. So I thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here. I thank you, Lord, for um, all that we've heard today, from your testimonies to your message. We pray, Lord, that then in our discussion groups, we would, yeah, encourage one another in our faith. Pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.